0: that will be for the redeemed in Christ. It'll be a dreadful day for those who don't know him. And so our prayer is that as a church we are constantly going beyond these walls. It's a joy to worship inside our buildings, but it's a tragedy when churches remain inside their buildings all the time. We have a lost world that needs the gospel, and you as believers have been commissioned to give it to them. So let's go out after this service today, church, with rejoicing, with joy on our faces, and with hope in our hearts to share that message with the lost and dying world. Amen? All right. It's good to have you with us. If you're a guest, welcome. Uh, you're amongst friends, so feel at home. There are some gift cards in front of you in the pews. If you don't mind to fill one of those out and drop it in the offering buckets as you leave today, uh, I would love to follow up and just get a chance to talk with you a bit more. And I do want to thank Vincent for doing the announcements this morning and for mentioning uh, this new opportunity to serve this loss team which is basically a greeting team uh, with a bit more involved to it so see him and I do want to clarify that that his fiance Alyssa is serving in the nursery she's not actually in the nursery because that would be that would be really weird if you had a girlfriend in the nursery so I did want to clarify that but we're thankful for Alyssa and I'm thankful for Vincent this morning and I like to give him a hard time when I can so I saw an opportunity and I took it. So I hope he doesn't mind there. But uh, this morning as we begin, uh, as is our custom here at the church, we take a few moments to read some scripture and then just silently spend a couple of seconds asking the Lord to cleanse our heart, prepare us for the word, and to just uh, get our minds ready. So this morning I'm going to read to you in our time of confession from Psalm 55, verses 16 through 19. And then as I said, we'll take a few seconds uh, in, in quiet prayer together and then I'll lead us corporately. So Psalm 55... Verses 16 through 19 says this, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning, at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and they do not fear God. Lord, we thank you this morning that you are a God that hears your people, and Lord, we have many, many needs. Uh, sometimes it seems overwhelming as a pastor to hear all of the needs that our church has, that I have myself, and yet you're not overwhelmed by any of those, and so I'm thankful today that we can lay our burdens at your feet, Lord, that you care about us in ways that we can't fathom, Lord, so uh, forgive us of our sins this morning, Lord. help us to repent of the things that we have brought in here, Lord, that uh that you died for and we just pray that you will give comfort and peace to those that are struggling lord we lift up those in, in afghanistan in these faraway lands this morning lord uh, who who are worshiping or who have worshiped lord and and perhaps didn't make it through that service safely and lord uh, what a tragedy to think about that in one sense but what a glorious hope that they have that they are willing to worship even in the face of death because they know that death has no victory in their lives as believers and it has no victory over us And so, Lord, help us to be more faithful. Help us to look at their example and in some small way try to live with eternity on our hearts and on our minds each and every day, Lord. We thank you for your grace to us, and we give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we are going to continue in our series that we started two weeks ago. The struggle is real, where we have been looking as believers. Yes, we struggle. Just because we're saved doesn't mean that life doesn't get heavy, that trials don't come, that temptations... Don't overtake us, and so there are struggles for the believer. There are many in this room today that are struggling with various things. There are folks watching online that are struggling, and so you are not abnormal if you are a believer and yet still facing struggles, and so we've looked at forgiveness, and we've looked at fear uh, in the last two weeks, and now this morning we're going to look at something that I believe will be a little bit different than the first two. And I believe they will be different because what we're going to look at this morning is something that I would venture a guess to say that every single person in this room and watching online struggles with, but I would also say that the majority of us don't know it or don't see it. So what am I talking about? Well, let me give you a little story before we get into our text in the Gospel of Luke this morning. The story goes like this. After two weeks of pre-K, Linda Wilbanks, five-year-old grandson came home with a mighty big compliment nick told his grandmother that he was the smartest kid in the class with a deep sense of pride linda asked him if it was his if that was what his teacher said nick replied no ma'am i had to tell her first the title of my message if you haven't figured it out yet is the struggle israel pride so look with me this morning in Luke chapter 18. I'll let you remain seated this morning. and We're going to look at this story together. It's a short, uh, short account, uh, but I want you to see it. And then some of you will be familiar with this story. It's sometimes called uh, the Pharisee and the Publican or the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. And so we will read this together. Luke 18, as I said, you can remain seated this morning. Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. The Bible says this, He, Jesus, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, again, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that your Spirit would make it real to us, that he would open our eyes and our hearts to convict, to encourage whatever the need might be, and most of all, to draw those today that are lost to salvation uh, in Christ Jesus, Lord. So may you increase and I decrease as we preach your word with uh, belief and expectation and what it can do. And we give, all you th- give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So as I've done each week, I've tried to give you a bit of, a, of a, either a dictionary definition or a biblical definition or both of the terms that we are looking at so there's no confusion and we're all on the same page because sometimes people have differing ideas about what these words might mean and so I want to eliminate that confusion as we begin. So to be proudful, or to have pride, to be proud, is this, and this is more of a biblical definition, to elevate oneself, to lift up, is literally what the word pride means, to be lifted up, to elevate oneself over others. Notice in our text that not only did the Pharisee think highly of himself, but when you think highly of yourself and you're way up here, guess where everybody else is? down there and so not only do you think too high of yourself you look down on everyone else and so the definition elevate oneself over others a high estimation of oneself and to treat others with contempt so we're going to try to look at several different angles of pride in our lives and like i said the, the reason that pride is so deceptive is because we struggle to see it a- and normally it's other people that see it in us first and guess what happens when someone else finally gets enough courage to hopefully in love challenge you or to con, con try to get you to see that, that sin in your life? Because we're proud, how do we respond? Who are you? What do you think you're talking about? Look at your life, right? And so our pride won't even allow us to be rebuked, uh, to, to have others to hold us accountable. And so it's a really dangerous, deadly place to get into. And so I hope that The Holy Spirit will show you pride in your life. Like I said, I believe we all have it. It may be at varying degrees, but we all have pride in some area of our life, and I pray that we will be more mindful of that going forward, and I pray that perhaps today we can repent of that uh, and, and begin to rid ourselves, or at least allow God to rid our lives of that thing. So pride, number one, creates an attitude of independence from God. Pride will create an attitude of independence from God. Some of you are probably too young to remember this, but hopefully you learn these things in history still. I don't know what they teach nowadays in history anymore, honestly. But Timothy McVeigh uh, bombed the federal building in Oklahoma. And at his execution, he didn't offer any, any explanation, any apologies. He was pretty stoic and quiet. But he did hand out a letter to those that were there and to the victim's family, And on that letter was simply a few lines from the poem Invictus. And the part of that letter and part of that poem that he gave says this, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's a sad testimony that someone who committed such a heinous crime in his last moments from all what appears to be at least, died hard-hearted and lost in his sins, still shaking his fist at his Creator. And yet there are countless, countless millions of people that do the same thing. Maybe not to the degree of Timothy McVeigh, but in their hearts they say, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. And they'll die lost if they don't repent. So what will pride do in our lives if it, is, if it is then an attitude of independence from God? What ultimately will that do in our lives? I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today and I don't expect you to flip all over. But if you do like to try to follow along, if you, if you hang out in the book of Proverbs, may I put your finger in Luke's gospel and hold your place there and go over to Proverbs. But if not, just jot these down. The guys will try their best to have them on the screen behind me. But most of these will be from the book of Proverbs this morning. And the first one is... Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. This, this passage is, is filled with very strong language. It ought to cause us to pause and think about what God is saying to us in these verses. There are six things that the Lord hates. It's interesting when you look up that word hates in Hebrew, you know what it means? Hates. He hates these things. That's what he's saying. It's not, it's not a trick question. It's not trying to say something it's not saying. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination. That word abomination can mean wicked. It's also used to describe in the Old Testament things that were unclean. So if a leper, for instance, was an unclean person, there were unclean animals. That's the idea. These, these things are things that the Lord hates. They're an abomination to him. They're wicked. They're unclean. They can't be used by him. Haughty eyes, some translations say, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one, number seven, who sows discord among brothers, I can guarantee you, if, if you didn't never read this verse before and I said, Christians, write down seven things that the Lord hates and one that's an abomination, our list wouldn't look like that. You know why? Because we do a lot of these. I didn't, think I, I didn't think I'd get much on that. But it's true. It's true, right? And so the very first one he listen, list is a proud look. And that's exactly what we said at the onset of this sermon. A proud look. Because when we think too much of ourselves, we look down on everyone else. It's just a natural order of that thing. Pride puts us up here and everyone else down here. That's how we stay in that state of pride, is we're better than everybody else. We think that we know more than everybody else. We think that our opinion is right and everyone else is wrong. Do you see that in the world today at all? With everything going on, everybody's got an opinion and their opinion is right. Right? We've lost the art of listening. We've lost the art of being able to disagree and still have a reasonable dialogue with one another. It's impossible. I'll talk to you as long as you agree with me. If you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. Get out of my sight. That's the attitude, and I I pray it's not our attitude towards other people. We ought to be able to have conversations about things and be able to disagree amongst each other without being disagreeable. And that's really tough anymore. And so the Lord hates it when we have this prideful, arrogant attitude that elevates self, especially above other people. Because all of us are created in the image of God. We all have worth and value. And there is nothing that we have that we didn't receive, my friends. We have nothing to boast about except the Lord. And yet we get so proud sometimes. And, and listen, let me, let me back step a little bit that not everything about pride is wrong. You know, there are certain things, if you, if you are proud about accomplishments uh, in life, there's nothing wrong with that. If someone, if someone pats you on the back and said, I appreciate the hard work that you did, they're not sinning by, by being proud of you. If you're, if you're proud of your child for an accomplishment, I'm not saying that every instance of pride is bad per se, but what I am saying is when we elevate ourselves, when our estimation of ourselves Uh, is is unrealistic is unnatural is unbiblical there's a problem there and so go back in our text at at luke chapter 18 and and let's 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 take a look at this again uh jesus gives a comparison in this story in this parable of a pharisee and a publican so he's he's taking things about as extreme as he could have have taken in in those days the pharisees were the religious elite They were the law keepers, all 613 laws, and they made sure that you knew every one of them, uh, how good they were doing at keeping those things, and they walked around and made sure that everybody saw just how good of a job that they did. Everything religious that they did was put on public display, not because they wanted to lead others to the Lord, but because they wanted to show themselves to be good, God-fearing, Torah-observing Jewish people. And they did that with a prideful heart. And they contrast, Jesus contrasts the story with a publican. These were usually Jewish citizens who had had decided to serve Rome by collecting taxes. Now, most of you may be aware that the Jews hated the Roman occupation. That was what they were longing for the Messiah to come to do, was free them from the oppressive hand of the roman government and so for one of their own people to take sides if you will with rome to collect money collect taxes was an act of of being a traitor in essence and those folks were looked down on and, and not only that but many of the tax collectors were immoral themselves and they would they would be dishonest in the practice taking some of those taxes for themselves and so they were looked down upon so you're contrasting the best with the worst, so to speak, at least in the eyes of the Jew. But I want you to notice that the Pharisee decides to, to pray first. And when we, as we read his prayer and as we look at his prayer, beginning in verse 11, we see something over and over and over in that prayer. Do you notice it? How does he begin each sentence? I, I, I Thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week and I give tithes. His entire prayer was not centered on God. It was centered on Him. And all the things that He did. He was absorbed with Himself. That may sound a bit familiar. At least after today, I hope it will. Because I want you to see where that sin originated. And where all sin originated. In... Isaiah chapter 14, we hear the account of someone, and I'm going to ask you who you think this is. Isaiah 14, beginning of verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. So if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, a few weeks ago we looked at Satan uh, in, our, in our discussion of spiritual warfare And if you remember, we looked at this passage where he talks about, O day star, son of dawn, son of the morning. Do you remember, anybody, for, for extra credit, remember what name we get for our enemy from this passage? Lucifer. I heard somebody whisper it. Yes, Lucifer, son of dawn, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. Why? Why did this once highly anointed cherub that was... perhaps the worship leader, if you will, of heaven's angels, who was so esteemed by God, what happened to him that would cause him to be kicked out of heaven and cast down to the earth with a third of the angels with him? What happened? You said in your heart, look at what Satan said versus how the Pharisee prayed. I will ascend to heaven Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan was consumed with pride. It wasn't enough to serve God. He wanted to be God. And in his pride... He was judged and cast out from heaven. That's the seriousness of this sin, and that is the source of that sin. We are ultimately acting just like the devil when we allow pride to rule our lives. It was the first century Church Father Augustine who said it was pride that changed angels into devils, and that is the truth, and that's a sobering thought to think about, that that angels who were in the very presence of God could be deceived and ultimately choose to worship something else other than God himself. If they fell into that trap, being in the very presence of God, how much more should we be on guard for deception in our own life? Not only that, but once the enemy was cast out of heaven, he used those very tools, if you will, to tempt our first parents. In Genesis 3, 5, in the Garden of Eden, here he comes shortly after God has, has blessed them and allowed them to have free reign, if you will, over the Garden of Eden and to eat of any tree except one and to name the animals and enjoy fellowship with God and with one another. Uh, what, what a privilege they had. And yet here comes the enemy. Imagine having everything on earth given to you by God, which we do, but in this, in this perfect estate that Adam and Eve were in. Everything you see is yours. You have fellowship. You, God walks with you. And talks with you. And yet here comes the enemy. And here's what he says to them in Genesis 3, 5. God knows that when you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he's speaking of, your eyes will be opened, and here is the offer. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was the last part of what the enemy said in, in Isaiah 14? I will make myself like the Most High. You will be like God. Pride offers man something that it can't ultimately carry through on. It offers you the opportunity to be like God. You say, I I, I would never want to be like God. I know I'm not. But every time you make a decision contrary to the Word of God... Every time you choose to do it your way rather than God ways, you are in effect saying, I will be like God. I know what's best for me. God's word says this, but I want that, therefore I am going to choose myself over God. You see how subtle it is? We don't think like that, but that is in essence what our actions are saying. It is pride that causes us to live that way. Look at Proverbs 16.5. It says there, that everyone who is arrogant or proud, where? Everyone who is arrogant or proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And be assured, he will not go unpunished. Notice in that text that it tells us something about where pride resides. Everyone who is arrogant in heart. Now again, we've talked about this a lot. The Bible is not referencing, most of the time at least, the organ pumping blood in our chest. <clears throat> it's talking about the very center of our being, who we are, in essence. And it is in the heart, in the center of our affections and our desires and our thoughts, that pride sets up camp. We think about that, and we hear Jesus saying the same thing in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Jesus, again, reiterates the the, uh, the where the... The pride ultimately resides in Mark 7, verses 21 and 22. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come these things. Listen to what he says. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Out of the heart. That's why this is so hard for us to to pick out in our lives. Because it's tucked away neatly inside and we don't even see it in our lives. But it does manifest itself. And that's usually how others see it. They see it by the way it manifests itself. And the problem is, Pride will manifest itself in many different ways. And when it does, why we ultimately never get rid of the pride is because we deal with the symptoms, not the cause. Pride shows itself up. I use this illustration all the time, but we go out in the summertime when it's hot and dry like it's been and the grass is all burned up. But guess what's growing just fine? All the weeds And we say, man, I don't want to have to get the mower out. It's 100 degrees. The grass is dead, but I got to mow down these stupid weeds. So we get out there, and here we go, and we chop off the top of the weed. Does that do any good? For about a day, your yard looks okay. But then they're right back up. Why? Because you didn't deal with the root, and it's going to come right back. And that's the same thing when we deal with the symptoms of pride and not pride itself it's going to manifest itself again and again and again, maybe even in a different way, but it's not going to go away until you see it for what it is. How many of you have ever gotten an apple and there's that little, you start get ready to eat or maybe you're doing worse and you already bite into it and then you notice that little hole in the apple. Somebody said the only thing worse than finding a worm in your apple is finding half a worm in your apple, right? That's really bad when you've already found out the hard way that there was one in there. But most people see that little hole and they think, oh, A worm must have burrowed into the apple. That's not, in fact, what happens, friends. The worm, the larva, was already in the apple, and it grew and ate its way out. And that's a good illustration of how pride works. It doesn't burrow in. It comes out from the heart because that's where it resides in us. Let me give you another text text that is really sobering to me. I, I... I, I've read this a million times, but as I did this lesson this week, it really it really hit in a different way for me. James 4, 6. Peter also quotes this Old Testament text uh, in his epistle. But James 4, 6 says this, But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes or God resists the proud, but gives grace... To the humble. Now, on the surface, no matter what translation you use, maybe thinking God opposes or God resists the proud doesn't really carry with it a lot of weight. Uh, it should, but, but maybe you're not convinced yet. The Greek word there for resist or oppose is antitasso. What on earth does that mean? It means to go to battle against. It means to go to war with someone. So let's read that text now with that idea. God goes to war against the proud, but gives grace, unmerited favor, undeserved favor to the humble. Here was my thought this week for myself and and for my church. Maybe some of us think that we're fighting the devil and we're really fighting God. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. That's a sobering thought. That's what James is saying. If you are proud, you are literally at battle with God. Who's going to win that? I wonder. Right? We sometimes think that we're fighting the good fight and we're fighting against the very one that loves us and wants us to see this in our lives so that we can, in fact, be humbled and walk with God. And not only does pride affect our relationship with God it affects our relationship with others. In Proverbs 13:10, this I'm going to read to you from the King James version. I think this is a better translation of this passage. It says in Proverbs 13:10, only by pride comes contention or strife, the other translations may say. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Only by pride comes contention. Think about all the fighting in our world today. Sadly, think about all the fighting that sometimes goes on in church today. What is the cause? Only by pride comes contention. We say, here's the line, I'm drawing it, and if you won't listen to me, you're wrong. I want nothing to do with you. Don't talk to me anymore. And we draw that line in pride. The pride that brings strife amongst one another. The strife that we see in our world today is because so many people are convinced that their way is the only way. And if you don't accept me for who I am, for what I believe, for what I think is right, then you're wrong and I want nothing to do with you. Families have been split. Friendships have been severed because both sides are so pride that neither one can admit that they may be wrong, or that they can disagree and still love one another. Life is so short that we would rather win an argument than to have that relationship with someone. What a sad thing to think about. And perhaps you've been through that. Perhaps you're going through that right now. The holidays come around and you say, man, we can't even get together because everybody fights. Usually, and, and I found this to be true, usually in most families, it there is one particular group perhaps the grandparents most of the time that kind of holds things together and when they pass away the whole thing falls apart and that's sad that's really sad and usually a lot of times it happens because when the grandparents pass away guess what everybody wants to fight over their stuff and they fight over their stuff and they're too proud to say well we'll work this out and so because the the grandparents died and we were so worried about getting stuff that's going to burn up someday anyway that we stop talking to people that we love that have a soul that are going to spend eternity somewhere. Do you see how much pride can destroy things? We've all experienced some of that in our lives. I'm sure you have. Let me give you another verse, Proverbs 28, 25. I'm going to give you this one from the New King James Version. I know I'm using several different translations this morning, but I want you to get what I feel is the best uh, English usage of of these passages. And so Proverbs 28, 25 in the New King James says this. He who is of a proud heart so we know now that that's where it originates he who is of a proud heart does what stirs up strife but he who trusts in the lord will be prospered see the contrast there the humility will bring about good things pride will lead to nothing but strife someone said i don't know who this quote came by but pride will always be the longest distance between two people pride will always be the longest distance between two people Because pride puts our ego on the throne. It does. It exalts us. And so rather than working out a problem, we attack people. And that's exactly what these passages are saying. And listen, you may be right. Like you legitimately may be right in your argument. But your response is wrong. Your attitude is wrong. I'm not saying that you're always wrong in your opinion or what you're saying. But if pride controls you, your response is wrong, your attitude is wrong, you see? And so here's the irony that pride carries with it. The proud person, ultimately, they want honor, they want to be respected, they want accolades, when in fact pride does the exact opposite. The thing that they're wanting, the thing that they're thinking pride will give them, gives them the opposite. That doesn't give them esteem and accolades and awards. It gives them contempt. Listen to Proverbs 11 too. When pride comes, so see the first part, when pride comes, then, so that's saying when this happens, this is what is going to result. When pride comes, then comes disgrace but with the humble person is wisdom when pride comes then comes disgrace that's not what you want when you're proud you want honor and accolades and you want people to see how awesome you are and instead it brings disgrace upon you let me give you another one proverbs 15:33 proverbs 15:33 says this the fear of the lord is instruction in wisdom Now notice the second part and look at the order. And humility comes before honor. If you want honor, you have to first learn humility. And the result will be that honor. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Isn't that what we see in the Gospels? That the least shall be the greatest? Don't we see Jesus saying that the way up is down, humbling ourselves? And the way down is when we think too much of ourselves, right? Humility, my friends, began in heaven. Do you realize that? The greatest example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest example that we can see is the sinless Son of God, the triune, second member of the Godhead, stepping out from heaven, and leaving that to come to earth, to enter into his creation as one of us. To take on flesh that the Bible talks about in John's gospel. What an act of humility. I always think about the Apostle Paul in Philippians and he talks about this. And just those, those verses where he says this, Let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you. Think this way. Which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That word is kenosis. He emptied himself. It's not that he ceased being God or he became any less. How did Jesus humble himself? How did Jesus empty himself? It's not by what he did away with. It's by what he took on. By taking on flesh, he humbled himself. The the, the God of the universe became flesh. He tabernacled among us in flesh. What an amazing thought that God would love us enough and want to redeem us enough to where He would become one of us. Sinless, obedient to death. Even the death on the cross, the Bible says. Wherefore, because of His humility, because of His obedience, Paul says, God has also exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, both on heaven and earth. What a mind-boggling thought. That one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And that is the example of humility. That Jesus, the Son of God, would put a towel around his waist after supper knowing that in a few hours he is going to be betrayed and crucified and beaten and mocked yet he would bow down and wash the feet of these disciples what an example for us and how arrogant it is for us to boast in ourselves and to be full of pride there's a story of of a turtle who used to sit down by the water and watch the geese fly overhead. And he thought, what what an amazing thing it would be if just once I could soar in the sky like those geese and see creation from that view. And one day he has this epiphany, and he says, I've got an idea. And he goes over to some of the geese and he says, I want to ask you if you'll do me a favor. He says, would each of you take a stick, a branch in your mouth, and i will grab a hold of that with my mouth and you fly up into the sky and allow me to fly with you and so they they agree and they take the branch each one has an end and he's in the middle holding on with his mouth and off they go and they're flying over the pond and the trees and and he's just taking it all in and it's just amazing and the farmer is watching all this go on and they fly by a couple of times and and the farmer says what what an amazing sight that I'm seeing. Who in the world would come up with such a brilliant idea? And the frog said, it was me. You see, he had to let go of the branch to open up his mouth and brag on himself, which ultimately led to his demise. And finally, and we'll close with this thought, pride will ultimately condemn you. Look at our text. Look at our text from Luke. He talked about the fact that Jesus said, one of these, one of these went down justified rather than the other. One man was humble, couldn't even lift up his eyes, smote his breast, and all he could say was, God, be merciful to me. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, which is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's what we deserve. God's mercy through Christ Jesus allows us to escape that dreadful place. It allows us to have our sins forgiven. Be merciful to me, God. I know I'm guilty. I know I deserve hell. I know that I should not even be in your presence. But show me mercy because I am a sinner. That was the prayer of the publican. we make praying to God so difficult. If you're here today and you're lost, there's not any magic power in a prayer. There's not any special thing that happens at this altar. There's something special when you as a sinner approach a holy God and say, be merciful to me, save me, forgive me. And God will do the rest. That's what happens when a sinner gets saved. God hears their plea, and he does the work on the inside. And that's what happened to this publican. But the Pharisee was too proud And he ultimately left boasting in himself, continuing to walk around with his chest out, strutting around doing all his religious stuff that meant nothing to God. It meant nothing to God. You can come to church, you can sing songs, you can teach Sunday school, you can preach in the pulpit. But if you're not born again, it means nothing to God. It means nothing to him. D.L. Moody said, the great preacher D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. And that's exactly what we see with the Pharisee today. And I want to close with this thought, too. A lot of us are concerned about our country, and rightly so. A lot of us, for a long time, have been praying for revival. And we say, Lord, get them right out there so that we can have revival. Revival don't happen out there. Revival happens in here. You've got to have something to get revived to it again. And so it's the church that needs revival. Our nation needs saved. There's a difference. We need to see the gospel proclaimed, but because Christians have become so lax and apathetic, we see what's going on in the world as a result from Christians and churches who are unwilling to go out and share the gospel. And this verse is one that we quote all the time. You see it almost all the time in re- revival, tent meetings, wherever you want to go, this verse will undoubtedly come up, Second Chronicles seven fourteen. But really, we don't need to quote the whole verse because we don't even get past the first line. That's the problem. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, and we ought to stop right there. We ought to stop right there because that's where the problem is. We are so proud, and you say, well, you we're proud, again, because of the actions The actions that we carry out. If we really believe this stuff, we would humble ourselves enough to say, anything I can do, anywhere I can serve, any place I can go, Lord, send me. Here I am, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here I am, Lord, send me, was the prayer of Isaiah the prophet. But we're not. We think it's somebody else can do that. I'll do it later. I'm too busy right now. I've got other things, too many irons on the fire. If we really, really believed that that people were dying and going to hell, would that be our response? If your child was in the bed with a hundred and five degree fever dying, would you say, Well, I'm busy right now, but hopefully I'll get back later tonight and get you the doctor? Of course not. There would be nothing on earth that could keep you from taking care of your child. How much more then should we care about those dying without Christ? We should. Warren Wiersbe said, one of our problems in churches today is that we have too many celebrities and not enough servants. That's not easy to hear, but perhaps it's true. And so I want to invite the praise team to come, and I'm going to conclude with with these thoughts, that sometimes pride cloaks itself in humility, because we've all heard people say this, and maybe we've said this. I don't need help. I can handle it. Some people admit it. They'll say, oh, I'm just too proud to ask for help. We need. Is there anybody that's ever not needed help? I need help. I need you. And you need us. We need each other. And when you come in here and say, I got it. I'm good. I'm not really good, but I'm going to say I'm good because I don't need help. I'm too proud to ask for help. Friends, we're admitting our problem. And we're cloaking it in humility. Oh, he's so humble, he never asked for help. No, he's proud proud to ask for help that's the problem and i'm going to say this and I, i'm going to point this at myself men we're the worst about that we're the very worst about that men we just are we we don't want to cry in public because we bought into this idea that men men are tough we should never cry jesus wept but that's that doesn't matter we're not supposed to cry men there's nothing wrong with crying There's nothing wrong with breaking down sometimes and saying, I'm struggling and I need help. Because you are. We are. Men are struggling. No doubt about it. Some of it is self-induced, but I'm not here to beat you up about that. Because a lot of it is simply because you feel like you can't show any emotion. I can't come to the altar and cry because I'm a man. You need to. We all need to. So this morning, don't let pride keep you from Christ. Well, I come to the altar, but people are going to look around and say, man, what's that person at the altar? What are they doing up there? When the invitation comes, you shouldn't be thinking anything about anybody else. You shouldn't be worrying about what anybody else is doing. You should be worrying about why you're not doing something. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thankful that uh, the Holy Spirit does expose things. Sometimes it's tough. We don't like to see things in our life. We don't like it when light shines into dark places, but we all have them, Lord. And when that light comes in, may we not uh, pull the switch and turn it off. But may we rejoice that you are exposing things in our life. And may we know that we can come and confess those sins and be forgiven. Most of all, may we know that if we're here today that's, and we're lost, Lord, that we are in danger of, of condemnation, of hell. But we don't have to go to that place. If we will humble ourselves and lay down our pride, and come and receive Christ. That we can be saved. That we can experience victory in our life as believers. That we can have encouragement from one another. If we will admit we're struggling and ask for help. So Lord, in this invitation time, allow us to truly make decisions. Allow us to be humble enough to do that. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand as we sing this morning.